Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence, illness, and forced starvation, which may be triggering for some listeners. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Nowadays, with the world in the midst of a global pandemic, we know the value of listening to qualified medical professionals and following their directions. But still, the amount of misinformation out there about quote-unquote natural cures or alternative medicine can make it really hard to know who to trust. Even some religions denounce the use of modern medicine and attempt to use the power of positive thinking to cure everything from mental health issues to cancer. And this is not a new phenomena. For as long as medicine has been around, hundreds of people claiming to have a cure for all sicknesses have taken advantage of people's trust. Snake oil salesmen, who would travel around selling a miraculous medicine in the 1800s, were so prevalent that the term is still used today. During the 1800s, it was fairly common for doctors to lack any real licensing or formal training at all beyond an apprenticeship in order to open up their own practice, although formal medical school was recommended. But around the turn of the century, the U.S. government started to crack down on these fake cures, and in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed, and the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, was created. Now, at the same time, the American Medical Association started passing new requirements for medical doctors, including an increased amount of education and formal training. But doctors who were already practicing at the time were able to kind of be grandfathered into the new system without having to meet the new requirements. So in this way, many doctors who weren't practicing within the known bounds of science were able to keep practicing and sometimes keep harming their patients. In the early 1900s, before the discovery of things like antibiotics, sanitariums were built across the United States. These hospital-like buildings were often very large, containing dozens, if not hundreds of rooms, and were oftentimes fully self-contained, having both treatment areas and also morgues. While these were mostly built to treat highly contagious diseases like tuberculosis, others were built as sort of health retreats and offered cures alternative to what mainstream doctors could or would offer. Around 1906, a woman named Dr. Linda Hazard, who was originally from Minnesota, relocated with her second husband, Sam Hazard, to the small town of Olala, Washington. Now, Olala is located on the water of the Puget Sound, across from Seattle and near Vashon Island. Originally, it was settled by Norwegian and other Scandinavian immigrants. 
At the turn of the century, only a few dozen families had settled there. So when Dr. Linda Hazard purchased several acres in Alala, and she shared her plans to build a sanitarium there, the residents were really excited by the prospect of a fancy new doctor in the area and a new way to bring money into the local economy. But as you might suspect, Dr. Linda Hazard was not a normal doctor. She couldn't mend a broken bone or anything like that. Her focus instead was on the treatment of people by fasting them meaning supervising them while they basically didn't eat anything more than broth. When new patients came to her, she would tout the fasting treatment as something that could cure almost any naturally occurring ailment. Cancer? Yep, fasting could solve that. Stomach problem? Just fast. Dr. Hazard had very few conditions for selecting her new patients. All she really cared about was that they had money. When Dr. and Mr. Hazard landed in Alala, they had grand plans of building a state-of-the-art sanitarium where they could treat dozens of patients at a time. They even already had a name picked out, Wilderness Heights. But the locals would come up with their own name for it, Starvation Heights, because of the very emaciated people that they would see coming and going from the facility. Building a treatment center of that size and that scale was going to cost a lot of money and take some time to actually build. So in the meantime, they built up a two-story home on the property. And Dr. Hazard set up her main office in downtown Seattle at the Northern Bank and Trust Building. By this time, she had written a book called Fasting for the Cure of Disease, and she advertised this book in publications around the Pacific Northwest and even all the way up to Vancouver, Canada. Two sisters, Claire and Dora Williamson, saw the ad for Dr. Hazard's book while they were traveling in Vancouver. These sisters were fairly wealthy and they were in their late 20s. Neither one of them had married and instead they really just seemed to enjoy the company of each other more than anything else. They were originally from England and they had grown up in Australia, but since adulthood they had kind of made it a habit to travel around the world and receive different forms of natural health treatments along the way. Both were fairly healthy women, but they were borderline hypochondriac, and they were often convinced that they were ill even when they were fine. As one of their cousins put it, Claire and Dora are ill because they can afford to be ill. Their family knew about their habit of spending money on these kind of new age treatments, and they really didn't approve of them squandering their wealth in that way. So, like I said, while the pair was in Vancouver, they came across the advertisement for Dr. Hazard's book. Claire was very intrigued. She had attempted fasts in the past, and both sisters had maintained strict vegetarian diets over the years. They both believed in the healing qualities of fasts, so Claire quickly sent away for the book, and when it arrived, she devoured every word of what Dr. Hazard had wrote. Claire grew more and more convinced that receiving treatment from Dr. Hazard would be able to help her and her sister be truly healthy. So before long, she had written to Dr. Hazard about receiving treatment, and after telling the doctor about the pair's various symptoms, most of which Claire ultimately did inflate, 
The doctor replied that she believed fasting under her care would be able to completely heal the sisters and that they should travel to Seattle at once to meet with her. Now remember, this is the turn of the century, so they couldn't just hop on a plane and travel down to Seattle. It took a while to kind of make arrangements to travel anywhere. So after a few weeks of making these plans, the sisters traveled to Seattle and met with Dr. Hazard for the first time on February 11th, 1911. Claire and Dora had decided not to tell any of their family members about their plans since they knew their family would not approve and instead they would try to convince them not to go. But the sisters really had their hearts set on receiving treatment from Dr. Hazard. They really considered it to be a miracle that they had even come across her book, so they could not be swayed. The doctor told them how she had successfully treated others in the past, how people had come to her near death and she was able to heal them through her fasting regimen, which included eating only broth for weeks, enemas, and massage treatments delivered from Dr. Hazard herself. Looking at the sisters, Dr. Hazard seemed concerned and insisted that they start treatment right away. The sisters were enthusiastic before, but after meeting with Dr. Hazard, any doubts they had in their mind were completely gone, and from that point on, they followed Dr. Hazard's every word. They looked forward to going to the sanitarium in the country that Dr. Hazard had talked about, but that sanitarium hadn't been built yet, and the doctor convinced the sisters to allow her to start treating them in downtown Seattle. She told them that as soon as the sanitarium was ready, she would deliver them there and they would spend their days in the country with animals and this beautiful surrounding and really just painted this wonderful picture of what it would be like. So the sisters got set up in a small apartment in downtown Seattle and their treatments began. The sisters had a nurse assigned to them from Dr. Hazard who would prepare their meals of broth and deliver their enemas, which had to be performed daily according to the treatment plan. Dr. Hazard would come by each day to check on the women and deliver her massages, which ended up being more like beatings than actual massages. She would take a closed fist and literally punch the muscles of these women over and over. It was not uncommon for them to be covered in bruises. She told the women that this increased blood flow and helped with the healing process. Now again, these women were very enthusiastic about the treatment, and although they were very hungry in the first few days, that quickly faded and they got used to eating basically nothing. Of course, along with that, they began to drop weight very quickly. Although the sisters had started off with going on walks around Seattle as part of the treatment plan, their neighbors noticed that this was becoming increasingly difficult for them. It wasn't long before the sisters needed assistance from the nurse to walk even as far as the hallway of their building. During one of Dr. Hazard's visits with the sisters, she voiced concern about the sisters keeping their fine jewelry inside this apartment in downtown Seattle. Although the sisters were convinced that the apartment was safe, Dr. Hazard finally convinced them to let her put the jewels into a locked safe inside her office where she could ensure that they would be kept safe. 
Again, these sisters were just blinded by their full belief in Dr. Hazard, and so they obliged, and they let her take all of their fine jewelry, which was highly valuable. The sisters, of course, would not see hardly any of these jewels ever again. As the days and weeks went on, the sisters continued to lose weight rapidly to the point where they could no longer walk at all and they had to be carried to the bathroom for their daily enemas. They weighed less than 100 pounds each and their neighbors became very concerned for them, though when the neighbors visited the sisters, they would insist that this is what they wanted and they would refuse any offer of food. They still seemed to believe in Dr. Hazard and her fasting cure, even as they appeared to waste away. Around this time, Dr. Hazard informed the sisters that they could finally go to Walala and continue their treatment in the country as they had wanted to. Because by then, they were so frail and unable to walk, ambulances were called to take them from their apartment to the ferry that would transport them across the Puget Sound to Walala. During the ride, it became apparent that the sisters were in very poor condition mentally as well as physically. Dora especially, the entire time she was being transported, she was apparently mumbling to herself, though no one could make out exactly what she was saying. Before the women were carried off of the ferry, they were joined by a lawyer under the direction of Dr. Hazard. Now, Dr. Hazard told Claire that since they would be completely under her care and because during the last few weeks of treatment, both of them would be extremely frail, Claire would need to sign over everything to Dr. Hazard to ensure that Dr. Hazard would be able to make decisions on behalf of the sisters. Claire, extremely weak and likely not in her right mind, agreed and signed anything the lawyer presented to her. Once the ferry landed in Alala, the sisters were taken to the Hazard residence. The sanitarium still hadn't been built, but the Hazards had a house for themselves and several cabins had been built on the property that could house them. The sisters were placed in rooms inside of the Hazard house so that they could be closely supervised around the clock by Dr. Hazard herself. Once inside the Hazard household, the sisters were placed in different rooms on the second floor of the house, and since neither one of them was mobile at this point, it essentially ensured that the sisters would be fully isolated and completely at the mercy of Dr. Hazard and the nurses under her employ. Although Claire had been dedicated to the treatment and a loyal follower of Dr. Hazard, her loyalty began to waver as she became weaker and weaker. She could see that her sister Dora was not well and would not survive under these conditions for much longer. But still, the doctor insisted that they continue with the treatments, even when Claire started to question her and questioned if Dora was okay. Claire began to consider what she could do to rescue herself and her sister from the confines of Dr. Hazard. She knew at that point that the doctor really couldn't care less if they lived or died, and she knew that she would have to do something in order to get them out. Now, the doctor controlled all of the mail. Everything that got sent out and everything that came in was passed through Dr. Hazard. So sending a letter through the normal means was out of the picture. But 
If she could somehow get a message out, she knew that someone would come and save them. Although to this day, it isn't known for certain how Claire made it happen. On April 30th, 1911, a woman named Margaret Conway received a cablegram that said simply, Come SS Marama, May 8th, first class, Claire. Margaret Conway lived across the Pacific Ocean in Australia, where the girls had grown up, and she had been their nursemaid since they were very young. Margaret initially took the message to mean that the girls would be arriving back in Australia on May 8th. But after consulting with the ship's schedule, she realized that the ship was departing from Australia on May 8th, not arriving, which meant that the message was a request from Claire for her to come to the Pacific Northwest to be with the girls. Margaret didn't know how, but she could sense the urgency in the message, and she frantically booked a ticket and was soon on her way. Unfortunately, travel by steamership is not exactly quick, and Margaret wouldn't arrive to Vancouver until June 1st, over a month since she received the initial message from Claire asking her to come. Landing in Seattle, she was met at the boat terminal by Sam Hazard, Dr. Linda Hazard's husband, who informed her of some unexpected news. Claire had died, and Dora was no longer in her right mind. Margaret was absolutely heartbroken. She had basically raised these two young women, and they were the closest thing that she had to daughters of her own. So she knew that she had to do whatever was necessary to protect Dora. When she arrived in Alala and she saw Dora, she almost couldn't believe that the skeleton in front of her was still alive. She could see just about every bone in Dora's body and she could feel how frail she was immediately. Although Margaret wanted to take Dora away from Starvation Heights immediately, she also knew that Dora would be unable to travel in her current condition and it would take time and patience to be able to get her back to a stable enough condition to make an escape. Margaret was a smart woman and she was able to convince the Hazards to let her stay in Alala and be Dora's personal nurse and helper, free of charge to the Hazards, of course. Although Dora's meals were supposed to be no more than broth and maybe a few peas thrown in, Margaret began sneaking in other small bits of nourishment, things like bits of rice and bread strained into the broth, which would give Dora more and more calories to help her build up and regain her strength. While there, Margaret began uncovering more and more evidence that Linda and Sam Hazard had been stealing the whole time from the Williamson sisters. She discovered bank statements showing that Sam and Linda had transferred money from the sisters to their own coffers and had basically manipulated the fact that the sisters were in a depleted physical and mental state in order to coerce them into signing over their rights to Linda Hazard. When Margaret tried to tell Dr. Hazard that she would be taking Dora away from the sanitarium, the doctor exploded in rage, telling her that Dora was legally under her guardianship and it would be illegal for anyone to take her away. Margaret reached out to an uncle of the girls who lived in Portland, Oregon, who came to her aid in Alala. With his help, they were able to convince Dr. Hazard to let them all leave after, of course, paying a fee of several thousand dollars 
that she said was owed for the treatment of the girls. The fee was paid and Dora was finally free to leave the Hazard's house in Alala. Once they were safely out of Alala, they immediately reported what was happening at Starvation Heights to the proper authorities, including the assistant British consulate in Tacoma, a man named Lucian Agassi. After convincing the authorities that what Dr. Hazard was doing was in fact very criminal, a deputy sheriff went to Starvation Heights and arrested Dr. Hazard on August 5th, 1911. At trial, Dr. Hazard's defense continued to focus on the fact that what Dr. Hazard was doing was a medical treatment and other doctors weren't being sued just because someone who was gravely ill died in their care. The prosecution argued that Dr. Hazard's patients were only critically ill because they were receiving her treatment, and if they had never gone through the starvation, enemas, and beatings by Dr. Hazard, they would still be alive today. The jury, comprised of course of 13 white men, mostly agreed with the prosecution, although they did not agree that Dr. Hazard should be charged with first degree or even second degree murder. They instead found her guilty of only manslaughter, a much lesser charge than what the prosecution had hoped for. She was sentenced to only two years in prison for the death of Claire Williamson. After serving out her sentence, Linda agreed to never practice in the state of Washington again and moved to New Zealand with Sam Hazard, where she continued to tout the fasting regimen as a cure. There, she was somewhat successful, and she was able to earn quite a bit of money. After a few years in New Zealand, they moved back to Alala and finally built the sanitarium that Linda had wanted to build for so long. Since she was no longer allowed to practice medicine as a doctor in Washington, she called the sanitarium a school of health instead, therefore getting around the regulations. The School of Health contained a large three-story building that contained over a dozen treatment rooms for patients. But Linda Hazard continued to push her patients past their limits and was charged in two more deaths, although she received no further jail time. In 1935, it was as if nature itself had had enough of Dr. Hazard and the sanitarium was engulfed in a massive fire. Although no one died in the blaze, the sanitarium was beyond repair and the hazards never rebuilt. They continued to live out their days in the home that they had built on the property though. Several years after the fire, Linda Hazard began to feel very ill herself and decided to go through with the fasting regimen to try to rid her body of whatever was causing her to be ill. She herself was unable to survive the treatment and died in June of 1938 inside of her home. Over the course of her life, it is believed that Dr. Linda Hazard is responsible for around a dozen people's deaths by starvation. Although the hazards are now no more than a distant memory to Alala residents, as of this recording, it appears that the original home where the hazards lived and where Claire Williamson died is still standing, although it's in an extreme state of disrepair. 
According to several YouTubers who claim to have spoken to the property owners, there are plans of tearing down the home completely, relatively soon. Now, if you drive north on Orchard Avenue in Alala, you can see nothing more than wilderness. Nature has completely taken back what was once an evil place where more than a dozen people were starved to death. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about Starvation Heights. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to the Morbid Tourism podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. We'd really appreciate it. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the book Starvation Heights by Greg Olson, and HistoryLink.org.